Anthony Fasano from the Engineering Management Institute here. And before we bring you this episode of the podcast, we want to let you know that like many people, the team here at EMI is concerned about the COVID-19 coronavirus. While there are many reputable news and medical sources out there to help you stay informed, here at EMI, we'd like to use our platform to keep you up to date on any news related to engineering projects, conferences, events, and so on. We will be posting this information as we receive it at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash COVID-19. Again, that's engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash COVID-19. Stay informed and stay safe. Welcome to episode number 141 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, I will be talking with Andy Platts, CEO and president of Mead and Hunt. Andy will be talking about his career journey of how he went from being a fresh graduate at a school to the CEO of a company over 35 years. He'll provide some great tips to civil engineers aspiring to become leaders in their fields and also talk about how he and other leaders at Mead Hunt are currently leading their firm through this COVID-19 coronavirus crisis. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineering Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. Now, before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors do help us keep it free. So we ask that you please support them. Now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Mazer Consulting. A big thank you to EMI's sponsor, Mazer Consulting, a privately owned multidiscipline engineering firm with 950 employees in 32 offices nationwide and growing fast. Mazer Consulting's engineers, planners, surveyors, landscape architects, and environmental scientists provide professional services to a diverse client base across the public and private sectors. Headquartered in New Jersey with projects coast to coast, Mazer's offices are strategically positioned to provide comprehensive services to meet their clients' needs. Mazer Consulting is committed to the success of their clients and employees. I also want to mention that we are going to be doing some special training over the coming months focused around helping engineers to be as productive as possible working from home, since most of them are now doing that, of course, and also some training around how to conduct business development efforts online, mainly using LinkedIn. We're doing them because we received many requests from engineering firms to do these types of trainings during the current time, and so we're we put them together. You can find them at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Click on the training page and you'll find the next sessions for both of those topics. Also, our project management training and our people skills courses are still going to be continuing as well since they're all remote and online. And you can find them at the same page, engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Just click on the training menu. All right, now let me just tell you a little bit more about my guest for today, Andy Platts, before we dive in. Andy started with Mead and Hunt as a project engineer in 1985. He has held many roles over a successful 35-year career with Mead and Hunt before ultimately being named CEO in 2018. He takes pride in this nationally recognized architecture and engineering firm, focusing on career opportunities for employees and business development with clients and partnering firms. 
Andy develops strong relationships with clients and enjoys collaborating with them on innovative approaches to achieve their goals. In addition, Andy maintains an open-door policy and looks forward to conversations he will have with employees as the CEO. This was just a really, really genuine interview with Andy. I mean, it was in the midst of this coronavirus. In fact, right before I spoke to him, a couple more states had decided to kind of just shut it down and have people shelter in place. And he was right kind of in the midst of it with offices in different locations. And he was more than happy and generous enough to do the interview. And we talked a lot about leading a firm through crisis and some of the things that you really have to pay attention to as a leader through these times, which I thought were really valuable. And then he kind of dives into his career, which is a unique one with one firm over 35 years from graduate to CEO, which is pretty awesome. And so it was a pleasure to get to talk with him. This is also on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash engineering careers in a video episode. And without further ado, let's jump right in to our civil engineering conversation of the week with Andy Platts. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guest for today, Andy Platts. Andy is the CEO of Meet and Hunt. Andy, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So, Andy, there's a lot going on right now with the COVID 19 outbreak, and we're going to get into all that. But before we do that, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your career progression as a civil engineer. Well, 35 years ago, I didn't know what, what the COVID-19 was for sure. So when I came out of school, it was a different world. But at that time, I was a civil engineer, a lot of basic classes, like a lot of students come out today, and honestly had no clue what I wanted to do with my career. I knew a lot of it was a broad range of opportunities in civil engineering. And um, I was just kind of looking for to, to really learn after school what are some areas of interest that kind of get me excited. So I started uh, right out of school with Mead and Hunt uh, 35 years ago as an airport engineer. I had flown once in my life at that time and um, had really never been around airports or in aviation, but it looked like an interesting area to start, and my qualification as a civil engineer allowed me to do that. Back in that day, you uh, looked at a newspaper ad and you applied by uh, a snail mail, so it was a whole different world. So I started with them as a guy in the design side, doing construction inspection, designing pre-CAD, and then about a year after I started, we actually got into the CAD off-paper type uh, format, so a lot of technology changes in my early career days. So I stayed with that aviation uh, team all the way through leading it as a department manager, ultimately as group leader and led that from, I think I started, we had four people in that department. So we had 72 people in the company. Today we have 200 people in the department and 900 people in the company. So lots of change. We had one office back then. Today we have 35 offices in 17 states. So seeing a lot of changes in 35 years, all been fantastic. But the one thing that hasn't changed is honestly the values of the company, the foundation that we had. It's a 125-year-old firm, so a lot of history there. About nine years ago, I succeeded my group leader uh, occupation on the aviation side and had opportunity to uh, assume the um, president's position here at Mead and Hunt, where we took the CEO, was CEO and president, and split that in two as part of a transition plan. And then as of two years ago, I assumed the president and CEO position combined, and we'll look at splitting that up here in, in the next in the near term. When I say assumed, um, the way we operate, I mean, not everything is competed for. So I didn't, I was just given it. I wasn't crowned either of those positions. Uh, we competed internally for that. It was a very healthy uh, competition. We didn't lose anybody. Everybody got it. We all learned a lot, but uh, it was a competition, which makes you feel like you really deserved it, and you put your all in. I'm sitting here today as president and CEO of a 900-person firm 
with uh, operating in 17 states uh, with about 35, 37 offices throughout. So lots of changes in my career. That's a really interesting journey. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more. But before we do that, you are sitting here, as you said, as CEO of this company and times have changed. And we're dealing now with this COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. Pretty much everybody in the US is working from home at this point. And as you just said, you know, hour by hour, more states are kind of shutting down. And so as a leader of a civil engineering company during this time, how have you approached it? You know, what are some of the things that you and your leadership have kind of taken to plan to steer your company kind of through this crisis? Probably not different than other areas of business, but certainly in civil engineering also, everyone's looking at the leader for their reactions. And so number one was staying very calm, very collected, showing a lot of stability and lots of communication. So early on, as of even three weeks ago, I sent my initial email blast out. We had all company meeting for all 900 people to call in and just talked about what could be coming. Very early on stages, our focus at that time was getting prepared for remote at work, knowing that ultimately we'd probably be 100% remote. We're very fortunate from an uh, IT standpoint that we're really set up for that very well. We have some high production computers, uh, things that people have to do. We can do all that cloud-based. The computing can be done in cloud, so people can work on slow home lines and still do fast computing in the cloud. So we started at that time phasing in. At that time, we probably had 20% of our population work remotely anyway, with probably 40% that could. So we started slowly phasing that in almost west coast to east coast as the virus kind of spread. So it gave our technology folks an opportunity to get ready to not get overwhelmed on help desk requests and getting the right software hardware. And uh, we started working for that. So along that way, though, lots of communication. We put together a great communication plan of weekly all-company meetings, weekly manager meetings, leadership team meetings, an email blast by me at least once or twice a week, and taking questions from anybody. And honestly, you're on seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I was taking phone calls, emails from individual employees, even as of three weeks ago, just all worried, worried about a lot of different things. So being accessible, being transparent was key in really the early stage of phase one. Now we're really entering what I'm going to call phase two. Today, we're 95% of our staff are working at home. A few people who are not are just because of essential jobs they have in the office and kind of keep things humming but they have the ability to do that if they need to, if, we, if the government decides we have to do that in particular states. About one third of our states that we're housed in right now have gone to some type of work at home or shelter at home type uh, restriction, which really didn't impact us because we were already there. So along that way, it's just really alleviating stress on the staff. It's a big change, a lot of isolation being at home. So lots of communication plans. We've got remote happy hours going on. We've got uh, everyday staff check-in calls for each department, every office, making sure people are communicating. And then really phase two is looking ahead. Uh, we are looking at contingency planning of what might be. Is this a three-week impact? Is it a two-month impact? Nobody knows. So we're checking with their clients, getting a sense of what projects will move forward. Fortunately, the vast majority of our jobs today are moving forward. Clients get that infrastructure needs have to be taken in place. Some clients uh, are looking at opportunities for uh, stimulus funding down the line of having plans on the shelf ready to go. So we've got clients that are pushing projects even faster. So we're very, very fortunate that we haven't seen a significant impact yet on, on workload. And we're primarily in a public sector is the majority of our work, which makes a bit of a difference. Now we're really starting to look at what our, you know, where can we cut capital costs anywhere from large expenditures to really halting any office expansions right now. Uh, we haven't had any layoffs at this point. That's always a tool we may have to use. 
We're looking at everything from staff reduction to salary reduction to everything's on the table, but we're just looking at what tools we have available, but nothing at this point. So really looking ahead of seeing what's the impacts going to be, what are some solutions. We're an employee-owned company, very employee-focused. The last thing we want to do is lay folks off or really impact them from a job standpoint, but we have to be ready for all of that. So it's really a lot of contingency planning, scenario planning this week and next week, and then keep that communication flowing with all the employees. Well, I mean, it certainly seems like you're collected and confident going through this crisis. And I think what you said there at the beginning was really important is that people are looking for your reaction as the leader. And that applies to Andy, of course, but all you know, leaders in different companies and different industries. And even quite frankly, at every level, like parents, right? I mean, I have three kids and they're home from school and they're kind of like, they're looking at you to see like what your reaction is in terms of how much they need to be worried or stressed about it. So that's really great advice right off the top. And I think it's kind of like one of these issues where you really have to, like you said, you're 24-7 because these are issues that are going to affect the company. They're going to affect maybe the careers of your staff and also like just going to affect people personally, whether it's someone getting sick or whatever the case may be. So it's really not like this is something really different than what a leader in a firm might have to deal with. If, you know, if you're talking about crises, a lot of times it might be there's a recession or a project's coming in, things like that nature. But now you're dealing really like, far-reaching. So it's something that's definitely, I don't say interesting, but like, you know, challenging on many different levels. So that's something that it's good to hear you talk about some of the stuff. How has your staff so far responded to all of these things, Andy? Really, really well. I've had amazing number of outpouring of support from the staff of all different levels, emails, voice call, you know, voicemails, texts, of thanks for the transparency. And the word transparency, I think, can't be stressed enough. We've been wide, wide open with everybody from very day one of what the plan might be. And the word layoff came into a conversation today with our all-employee meeting. You can't shy away from that. They're all, it's in the back of their mind. So you just got to be frank with people to say, you know, get prepared. We're hoping we don't have to go there. You can't ignore it. And I think you got to face things head on. So once you open that door, I think it made people feel better that, you know, we're doing everything you can to prevent that. But that transparency piece is huge. And Again, at the time, we're sitting in a good spot financially. We're a very solid firm. We have a lot of real ups. We have a record backlog, new works coming in. The angst is the uncertainty of the timetable, whether it's three weeks, two months, whatever. And that, that's from a leadership level, it's tough to plan when you honestly don't know what that timetable is. If this was a hurricane or a tornado, you could deal with it. You could look at the timetable and really react to it and have a long-term plan. But you really have to have a short, mid, and long-term plan in this case and really keep your ear to the ground with the clients. How are they going to react? You know, can they still process bills? Can they process invoices? Is consultant selection going to continue? And what's that impact going to be in July, August, September, if you get a slowdown in New York? So you really got to look at short-term, mid-term, long-term, and at the same time, make people feel comfortable that we're doing everything we can to keep. In the end, you want to have a company that's viable and stable for them to come back to. And I think they get it. So I think they've embraced it as we're all, it's all, they all get to kick in something. We all have to make some sacrifices and working at home and whatever that might be. It's our company. So let's keep this baby running the best we can. And it's not my problem. It's our problem. And I think that's resonated well. And people appreciate the, the frequent communication is, I don't think you can communicate enough. You could almost do it daily and it's maybe not enough. So keep the communication up for those who are in the same shoes. That's great. And, and as I said earlier, you do certainly seem to be, you know, pretty calm and staying collected through this and really communicating with your staff, which is great. But my question for you is, is that like kind of your personality or is it something that you've developed, like just going through experiences like this as a leader? How does one get 
good, I guess, or be prepared for something like this? I say I've learned. I would early in my career, I probably would have been more reactionary. Probably would have stressed more. You learn as you grow up in an organization what matters changes. Early in your career, a project being delayed by a few days matters, or a project being over budget matters. And that's your world. As you move into department manager level, you're worried about the overall department. And the CEO level, you're worried about the enterprise. So the magnitude of the scale. And you look at worst case, we're going to get through this. There's no doubt in my mind we're going to get through this as a company, as in a country. And so you got to look at that. Now you got to step, okay, we're going to get through it. Let's take that off the table. Now how do we step through it in the most graceful way we can? So I think that adds to the calm. But I would say I've watched a lot of good managers, leaders over the years. I've watched a lot of poor managers and leaders over the years, and you learn from both. So being reactionary, being uh, trite about this thing is not good. Uh, you really picking and choosing the words you use. Every word is being scrutinized by everybody, whether it's written or verbal. And so I think that's critical to really don't, don't underestimate the power of, of that communication. It's been a lot of learning. Certainly, I wouldn't have handled this early on in my career, maybe as well as they have now, but that's part of being a leadership development, a part of leadership training, whether it be official and you're going to classes or you're just watching people around you, you should be a sponge and picking up the best practices of good leadership uh, folks that you've met. This advice from Andy, of course, is applicable to any kind of you know crisis or challenge that you might face in your career, whether it be something like this COVID-19 or something else, right? Staying calm, really communicating with your staff. So I think that that's valuable beyond today. And that being said, civil engineers far and wide are going to be listening to this episode beyond the COVID-19 outbreak. So let's talk a little bit about kind of your career progression. I know you gave us a little bit of overview. You know, you've been with the same company, Mead & Hunt, for 35 years, which is great. You've kind of gone through an engineering career and you're now um, serving as the CEO and previously served as the president. I talk to a lot of civil engineers that want to get to that point. They want to be an executive leader in a company and, you know, they start, they have ideas of that early on. Was for you, was that something that was kind of a goal of yours or did it happen kind of over time when you started saying, oh, I think this is something that I'm getting close to being able to do? Absolutely never a goal. I'm more of a I look at the people around me and see what's the best, what's the impact I can do for that particular group. So when I first started, we had a small aviation team and my goal was let's make that the best aviation team around. Let's grow it from a uh, state to a regional to a national practice. And that's where I set my sights. So I wasn't getting clouded by visions of being a group leader or president or CEO. I had lots to tackle, lots to go. So I, for me, it was, I love this company and what can I do to make this the best company and what can I do to keep myself learning? As you progress through that, and even those early stages of being an entry-level engineer or mid-level, that what you learn on the marketing side, the communication scale, you know, the crisis management of projects, the business side of managing the finance of a project, all of that is such a big, huge amount to learn because you don't learn that in school. You know, you learn the technical side in school. You just don't learn the business side and the uh, management side when it comes to communication skills. So lots to learn. You just kind of step through your career from mid-level to more senior level. And then you're still looking at other opportunities. Are you more prone for marketing? Are you more of a market lead kind of guy? Are you more of a technical person? You really want to be a manager. Just because you're 15 years in doesn't make you want to be a manager. You want what's your passion. So follow your passion. And if that passion is being the CEO, awesome. That's great. And then start to prepare yourself. I really didn't look at that. I just kind of stepped through a very orderly process of leading the aviation team. I saw the opportunity for president come up. I looked around the company and said, we've got a few good candidates but I think I'm the best candidate. And for the best use of the company, I'm going to be that guy. So I dove into it, competed and with all my heart and not half-hearted and was awarded that opportunity. 
and the same thing with CEO. And CEO came along and looked at the candidates and said, we've got a great group of candidates and all of us could do the job. I think I can do it better. And so again, I dove in wholeheartedly and competed for that. Again, in a very positive way, everyone's on board, they all got it. So you really got to decide where's your passion and follow that. But I can't say my passion is more step-by-step versus looking way up the chain and saying, I need to be or I want to be the CEO. But that's kind of the culture of our firm also. We're, we're very focused on the company as a whole, and people really take opportunities that best fit and best help the company versus best help themselves. And I think that's part of how we operate. I like that philosophy a lot because I do talk to maybe like a lot of younger engineers that, you know, they might say like, I want to really be a partner or an owner or a CEO of the firm. And they might not really understand completely what that means yet. And so I I think having a philosophy of, you know, do your job, be the best you can be on your team right now for your clients and continue to, to, if you take that approach, a lot of times what happens is you'll end up getting into leadership positions because you're delivering that value to the people that really need it from you. So I think that that's important. Are there any big differentiators that you see in engineers that do hold leadership positions? Was there something, you know, is there skills or characteristics that you find in a lot of engineering leaders that allow them to be in those leadership roles? So if I'm a young engineer and I'm saying, you know, there's some skills I need to focus on. If I do want to be a leader, what might you recommend to them? I think in engineers are, as I work around them and I've got a son that's an engineer and, and the, my entire, most of my, uh, associates are in that area. So it's interesting to see how common a lot of the traits are. So from a real positive standpoint, I think engineers tend to be very deliberate, very linear thinking, tend to be not overreactionary, not panic stricken. They've dealt with risk when it comes to design risk. So dealing with that, you know, from a hard dimension standpoint, they get it. Some are pretty good business people. They tend to be fairly good, but also in a very conservative way. So that's kind of the the traits that help most engineers up. Again, they vary. For sure, every personality varies. Where they struggle with is probably communication or understanding the value of communication. Some folks are good marketers. They can get out there and communicate with clients, but not everybody understands the value of communication with a staff and a team and that, you know, that bonding and that transparency. That's a challenge. Again, communication isn't stressed in most engineering curriculum, so it's always a challenge to kind of get people used to that. Some business applications may not be as stressed either, unless you have an MBA or some other areas, you may or may not be in tune for that. And um, when I look at uh, your really, really good engineers that are leaders, they've got a great technical background. They really understand you know, the work that they do, they understand the clients, but then they balance that against a real business and communication aptitude. And having all of those, it takes time. And you probably don't have all of those at any time in your career, but you're always developing myself included. You're always looking at what can I do better? I'm always looking for input from my staff, from peers, from others. How did I do on this particular presentation? How did I do on, I'm getting feedback during this crisis. I'm asking for it. Did I use the right words? Am I communicating correctly? Because none of us are perfect. We haven't gone through a lot of this before. So constantly looking for feedback, I think is also a good sign of a leader because you're, you're opening yourself up, showing a lot of empathy. Not all engineers are overly, uh, empathetic when it comes to staff. That's just not their nature in some cases. They're kind of hardcore or hard shell. They have it deep down the side of them. They probably show it at home, but they may not show it in the office. And so kind of softening and showing some vulnerabilities is a challenge for a lot of us. And it took me a while to understand it's okay to not know everything. It's okay to be vulnerable. And I think people appreciate that transparency when you show a little bit of vulnerability to the team. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really important because I do see that 
especially engineers younger in their careers, you feel like they're stressed that you need to know everything. And so, you know, that idea of asking someone a question can make you feel like a little bit less or, you know, that comes off as a weakness. But I think as you get older, you start to realize that you kind of have to ask questions for a lot of reasons because you don't know everything and, it, and you can do a better job, quite frankly. To Andy's point, even with this crisis, maybe as calm and collected as Andy is, he's certainly out there seeking advice and feedback on all of his actions to make sure that they're the best that they can be really for his people. And I think that that's my experience as well. I mean, we're having the same conversations here at EMI. I'm certainly you know, open to asking feedback, which isn't something that was always that easy to do. You're pretty active on LinkedIn as well in terms of social media, which I think is an important thing, especially for kind of engaging the youth out there in our industry today. What's your philosophy on kind of social media and how an engineer or an engineering firm should utilize it? So I'm not a LinkedIn or social media junkie. I don't claim to be one of them. I do appreciate the opportunity to provide, but I need to push. So I really engage the team early on as president CEO to say, okay, we've got some communication people push me to be more active on these sites because it's not my inclination. My inclination is to talk to people, to send out emails, conference calls, um, in-person meetings. I visit every office a couple times a year. That's very natural for me. Natural is not being on LinkedIn or something like that. So I need to be pushed. You have to be organized. It's not as spontaneous. But that being said, the value of it's tremendous. I think a couple things it's, it's done for me and Hunt and also from our peers is, A, it's a great communication tool to let people know the values and the culture of the company. Not advertising, but letting people know of what we value in the company. It helps in recruitment. It helps in um, whether it be mergers, acquisitions, kind of getting the word out there of what, how we operate and what the firm's up. We use a lot of it. At my level, it's a lot of that. It's how we handle our staff, how we treat our staff, kind of the culture and the environment of our company. Secondly, I think it's a great educational tool for other firms and even myself. When I look at people, what people are posting, I get great ideas from other firms on how to operate, how to handle different situations. And I would hope that people get the same information from myself or others when we post. So I think it's a real valuable piece there. And lastly, it makes you relevant. You need to be out there. Uh, you can become very irrelevant very quickly, whether it be from a client standpoint, whether it be from peers and associates, just being dark on the LinkedIn or other social media. I question over time if you are going to be, are you up to speed? Are you innovative? Are you state of the art? So being out there, I think, makes a big difference on your relevancy in the business. Even for me, I've gotten a lot of help from our team here in terms of putting stuff out there. And I'll go to conferences and people all the time will say, hey, I could get your podcast on LinkedIn. I listen to it all the time. Like, That's great. I mean, I'm glad that it's helping us to get you that information. And and even with the younger generations, you know, I know sometimes people will say, oh, you know, they spend kind of too much time on the social media. And that may be true to some degree, but it's also a form to communicate with them. Like we're seeing that through this virus outbreak that if the state or the governments are trying to get messages out there to the teens or to certain levels of people, they can really access them through the social media. So there's benefits to it. There's risks to it, but you kind of have to manage them. But it is good to hear from someone at your level about the importance of it and how you know you try to stay engaged with it to some degree, because I know that not all companies are that engaged in it, but it is definitely important, especially for that kind of recruitment side of things, the culture side of things, because that's where people can really be engaged. All right, before we jump in and put Andy on the hot seat to finish this one up, I got one more question for you, Andy. In terms of being an ESOP, employees own the company, talk about how you think that impacts the culture of the company. Because from some of the stuff that I've watched, you know, you have some videos on your website and stuff, it seems like it's a really critical component of the culture. 
So as I mentioned, so we're employee-owned, so we're not technically an ESOP from a technical standpoint. We don't have a formal, uh, it's not all employees are owners, but we have about a third of employees are owners, and they can be owners if they choose to be after our, in our program. So after two years of being uh, with Mead and Hunt and a year in the business, they can apply to be an owner. And more than likely, they will, if they're a good employee and they're dedicated, we're going to allow them to do that. And then we help them out financially to actually invest in the company. So it is an opportunity for everyone to be an owner, but it's not handed as an ESOP would be. And I think the difference there too is quite critical. Like an ESOP can almost be like a 401k match where everyone gets something. In this case, you, you want it, you want to be an owner, you have to invest a little bit of your own skin in the game and then continue to invest. So there is a, a more proactive ownership piece of it. The change in the culture, I think, is tremendous. I mean, everyone gets it. They're, they have a part of this company. They've invested their hard-earned money. They weren't given this money. And uh, they all want to make this company be sustainable. I mean, not only sustainable, they want to keep it growing. It's an investment. It's like anything you see out there, you want to see it growing. You want to see it profitable. And they're all part of making it be that way. So in good times, they celebrate. And uh, when bad times, they kind of hunker down and figure out, okay, what can they do to pitch in the sacrifice? So I, I think it's made this particular situation we're in today much easier for me to hunt because it's not four or five or six people that own the company. We've got almost 300 people out of 900 that have skin in the game and that's growing. Last year we took on almost 30 or 40 new shareholders and that will continue again next year. So our plan is to keep opening that up, get that employee engagement. I think in a situation like this, it really helps because they feel like they, they owe it to the company to pitch in. If there's sacrifices to be made, they will make those sacrifices. I have no doubt about that because they know it's their company, it's not my company, or it's not the leadership's company. So I think the overall attitude helps a lot when it comes to pitching in, on, especially in a crisis like this. Speaking from a career standpoint, I mean, to me, that's like the ultimate statement of trust from your company, right? Like they're giving you ownership in the company. And to me, if I'm someone that's trying to progress my career, I mean, what better than that to have my company kind of say, you know, you're all in on this, you know, you're part owner of the company. And to your point, thank you for clarifying between the ESOP because to your point, I think it's great that they're saying, you know, I want in on it. You're giving them that opportunity and they're taking it. And that kind of puts another level of accountability into it, which I think is really, really important. All right. So we're going to take a quick break here and then we're going to come back. We're going to put Andy on the civil engineering hot seat and wrap this one up. Stick with us. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. Now it's time for our civil engineering hot seat segment with Andy Platts. CEO and president of Mead and Hunt. But before we put Andy on the hot seat, I would once again like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Mazer Consulting. Big thank you to EMI sponsor, Mazer Consulting, a national multidiscipline engineering design firm. Mazer Consulting is pleased to announce it will be entering into an agreement to partner with Colliers International, a leading global commercial real estate services and investment management firm. Mazer Consulting's senior leadership will remain as significant shareholders of the business under Collier's unique partnership model. Expected to close in the second quarter of 2020, Mazer Consulting will be rebranded as Collier's Engineering Services by the first quarter of 2021. Our partnership with Collier's will be the first of its kind in our industry and the next step in the evolution of our business, said Richard M. Mazur, Mazur founder and chairman. Collier's enterprising culture, decentralized management style, and proven track record were important factors in choosing our strategic partner. All right, we're back with our guest for today, Andy Platt, CEO of Mead and Hunt. Andy, are you ready for the civil engineering hot seat? I am ready. Bring it on. 
All right, first question, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? I work out pretty much every morning. I'm a runner, so I like to run. So whether I'm traveling or, or in the office, which I'm not in the office a lot, I try to do something every morning, whether it be some workout routine or running, and try to do that six, seven days a week. I think staying healthy is a big part of what keeps me driven and keeps me focused on things. And honestly, some of the best ideas or different ideas I've come up with have been during those, those routines because you're out of the office, you got some me time, and you can focus on kind of thinking out of the box. I think it's imperative. And I think lastly, part of the health, just keep yourself healthy when it comes to eating. You know, I never used to, as a younger person, I'd skip meals, skip breakfast, you know, get up late, run to the office and just kind of blow through. But it is important to eat, eat three squares. It sounds kind of silly and elementary, but I think if you can keep your health up, as we're seeing around the country today, the value of that is imperative. And people are looking for that. They're looking at seeing a healthy leader, someone who's health conscious about things. You don't have to be over the top, but um, if you can kind of keep it and get into a routine. I travel three or four days a week normally, obviously not now. So it's a challenge. So you got to come up with something that works with your lifestyle. And you get to figure out what that is. And everyone's got their passion. And when it comes to whether it just be walking or swimming or whatever it might be. So pick your passion, keep it in a routine and uh, good, good at it. And let people know you're doing it. Everyone in our company knows I'm a runner. They know I'm active. And I think I try to drive that as a role model standpoint to see people and see if it's okay to take time out and run in the morning or run at lunch, whatever it takes to kind of keep yourself going. So that's probably my fairly consistent routine that, I'm, that I like to do. I often tell engineers, I know sometimes you feel like if you take time away, you know, you, maybe you're going to sacrifice something else, but staying healthy can actually make you more productive the hours that you're working. And like Andy said, maybe ideas come up and it contributes to the quality of your work. So it is very important and it can kind of boost that productivity. All right, Andy, what's one book that you might recommend to engineers or just one book in general that you found to be extremely helpful for you in your professional or personal development? There's a book called Surfing the Edge of Chaos by uh, Richard Pascal. I read it early on. I took SEI through ACEC leadership class uh, many years ago, and that's one of the first books I read. And some books resonate and some books don't. That one really did. And I think why it resonated around me is, as an engineer, you're always trying to solve the problem, whether it be a corporate problem, and you'd always love to solve it and just make everything, all the problems go away. And that's how we're wired as engineers. Surfing the Edge of Chaos really tells you it's okay to have those stress points. It's okay to have those problems because that's what keeps an organization interesting and alive. So as much as we love to solve a problem, stamp it, mail it, go away, you'll learn that it's okay to have challenges, problems like this virus issue right now. It's a big challenge. It's going to make us stronger in the long run for sure as a company and as a country, but it's hard to see that sometimes when you're going through it. So as a problem solver, I've learned that, okay, that's okay. And those stress points make this organization stronger and you're challenging it. So it kind of keeps yourself uh, vibrant because you're always staying on top of things. So personally challenging, but also from a company standpoint, people want to hear about changes. They don't want to hear about just the status quo. And I think that book, Surfing the Education of Chaos, talks a lot about kind of running as a leader. How do you evolve around that world of chaos? And it's okay to have it. In fact, it's better than okay. It actually makes it a healthier organization. All right. So two more questions. First one, thinking back on your managers of the past, and again, not asking you to name names or anything, but if you think of maybe your favorite manager, or a couple of your favorite managers, what was it that made them your favorite? What was it that they did? What was a skill that they had or an approach that they took that you might say, man, you know, I really remember that person because of this. 
I've been in touch with so many great managers and, and I'll even say poor managers. And I think in my world, I've never found one that's got the whole package. And I'm not sure that one exists that has a whole package, right? And nor do I. So I look at what do I admire with any one individual that they thought they really did well, whether it be a great communicator, whether it be someone who just wanted to give a presentation, they just they solid and knocked out of the park. Someone that dealt with uh, conflict easy. Some people are conflict avoiders and some people deal with conflict head on. So I've really picked the best of everybody that I've seen and I've learned as much about the weak spots in people as I probably have in the best spots. And I think that's good advice for anybody out there when you're working with people, not everyone's perfect. Not everyone's a perfect leader. Very few people are. That person doesn't even exist out there. But instead of getting down about it, learn what you can from the pluses and minuses and try to make yourself the best leader you can. And you're always improving by that. So I think that's why I would you know, keep it more, more of a hybrid model of picking the best you can. And as times change, leadership qualities tend to uh, differ too. And in and, and times of stress right now, different leadership qualities are needed versus times when things are really going well, a different leadership quality might be needed. To Andy's point, I mean, that's really why we ask this question is because when you get into a leadership role, the best way to start, maybe let me look at the last you know, five managers that I had and kind of pick out the stuff that they did well and try to implement it and look at some of the things they didn't do so well and maybe try to avoid doing those things. So that's a great point. All right, last question here, Andy, and I know you've already given us a lot of great advice for our listeners. This one last question, we call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her to give them career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? I had the opportunity to do this several times in and out of elevators. But first of all, you've picked a great career. I think civil engineering is just a fantastic career for the opportunities it's a very broad career, whether it be water, wastewater, transportation, et cetera. So secondly, there's a lot of innovative opportunities going ahead when you look at solving a lot of the problems that we have. So whether you're more of a sustainability person or you're looking at environmental resiliency and, and how to support structures around that, whether you're looking at different ways of saving energy, new transportation that's coming up with autonomous vehicles, et cetera. There's so many changes, so many challenges but they're also broad and different. So you have an opportunity to, to really help this country out and help the world out, but also really be innovative and kind of think out of the box. And that's what we're looking for. So you know, it's not just about paving asphalt and paving concrete and what some people may think is you know building bridges. That's all still there. So you still have the ability to do highly technical work, but also I think you got the ability to really think out of the box. From advice standpoint, I just take in all the information you can. You know, you graduate, you've been learning for four years, five years, whatever you're time period was, but keep that learning going. It's not just jumping into a job and doing a job. Every job should be a career and treat it as a career. So career means you're learning every day on the job all the time and just be a sponge. Take every opportunity you can to learn, take classes, take you know company classes that are offered, learn from other people around you and develop yourself, as I meant earlier, is develop the best you can be in that current role that you're doing. And then start to look for those next opportunities and keep that progression going. If you do that, you're going to have an awesome career. It's a great opportunity for all of us to be a civil engineer, and I applaud those who are going into it, and I'd love to talk with any of you who want to chat about that career option. Once again, Andy Platt, CEO of Mead & Hunt. Andy, thank you so much for spending some time with us here today, especially during these turbulent times coming on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Andy. I was really, really happy to have him spend some time with us at such a stressful time for engineering companies, for all companies. 
that he took the time out of his day and shared some really valuable advice in terms of leading through crisis and just developing one's career as an engineer from fresh out of school graduate to a CEO. I do want to also remind you that we will be conducting the work from home productivity trainings as well as the how to conduct business development online through LinkedIn trainings really catered for this time. You can go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and get all the information by clicking on the training page. And these are really affordable. We understand what's going on right now. However, if you still can't afford the webinars and you really want to participate, please just contact us through the website and we'll certainly give you access. I've never wanted an engineer not to be able to get the right training because they can't afford to. So that offer stands to you. Remember that you could find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 141 there. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. This episode's also broadcast on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash engineering careers. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 